It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today. He's the Ottawa correspondent for APTN, one of them, Kenneth Jackson. He spent a number of years covering some very in-depth stories on, I would say, some some disturbing uh, stories that need to be told. And, uh, Kenneth, it's great to have you here. We, we really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about these stories. And uh, and, uh, and I want to say right off the top that I, I my hat goes off to you. I appreciate what you do as a reporter and uh, delving into these very uncomfortable topics that need to be told and need to get out there for people to hear. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for saying that. So listen, one of the, one of the stories that, uh, that you've covered recently, certainly uh, uh, death as expected, is uh, uh, quite the title right there. And um, it has to do with the uh, uh, child uh, uh, services that we have in Ontario. Uh, do you want to do you want to give us the synopsis on on why? How did you first come across this story? Well, you know, it's um, the last few months I've been really digging at it, but it really began a couple of years ago when a young girl from Poplar Hill First Nation near Cronora, Ontario, you know that area, um, north of there anyway, it's a flying community of Poplar Hill. She uh, killed herself. She was thirteen, and she killed herself in a group home in Ottawa. And she was one of three at the time when that, that happened to die within six months. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a, big, that's a big deal. You know, one's too many. It's three First Nation girls to die, um, all basically by suicide. Then a fourth one, Tammy Kiash, died like about a month later in Thunder Bay, accidentally drowned uh, in a waterway. So we had four girls in six months. Big deal, right? Turns out we're not even close to how big that problem was. Mm. And... Over the time, I started picking away and trying to understand why this would happen. You know, I get if I was from home, I get there's reasons for it. Everyone wants to say, well, what's the parents doing? Well, as your listeners probably know, there's a lot more to it than just that. And so I kept going at it. And then it wasn't until about February 2018 when I got a video sent to me of a young girl in Canada, Sue Turtle, who killed herself in a Sioux Lookout foster home that was owned and operated by Tikkunavan Child and Family Services. And they operate, well, they, they are an agency, child welfare agency in Northern Ontario for both 31st Nation. Anyways, I watched her die. She recorded it. And uh, I, from there on, I, I, I was pretty much determined to tell the world of what's been going on in Ontario, particularly in Northern Ontario, and try and figure out the reasons behind it. And I wrote 17 stories on that young girl. She was 15 when she died in under a year. Um, every single one of them, I would say, unearthing massive amount of information. It's like picking away at, a, at an onion, just layer after layer after layer after layer of failures to the point where when do you stop calling them failures and you call it negligence? I think we're getting to that point now where I'm going to be pushing that part of it. It's like, what point do we stop saying system's broken and we, you know, and we accept that it's not just broken. It's designed a certain way. And I'm not saying people are purposely trying to kill Indigenous children. I'm just saying a lot of Indigenous kids are dying who shouldn't be dying. And not because their parents are abusing them. And not because and it's very, it's very rare. Eh? Like, it's, let's say you have 10 kids taken from their home, one or two, and which is awful. 
one or two maybe have severe abuse, maybe just one. Majority of it is poverty-related, addiction-based, uh, residential school problems, particularly up north, in northern Ontario, issues where families are struggling, like, severely, where they have their diesel-operated power. So if the diesel generator goes out, they have no power for three days in the middle of winter. That sort of family, it's that sort of issues. So those are some of the issues you have to look at. So when you see p- these kids are dying, most of these kids have been taken from their homes that I write about, actually every single one of them have never been really abused by their parents. Not that I would call abuse. They've, you know, it's not even like that at all. They're, they've been removed and the family has poverty-related issues that need, that could be addressed in, in, you know, in a litany of different ways, like different funding and programs and you name it, jobs, whatever it takes to lift them out of the poverty where they don't have to go on Facebook and ask for diapers, um, those sort of things. You know, why isn't the agency helping them get those diapers instead of saying, well, you can't take care of your kids, we're going to take them and remove them. So sign this agreement called a customer care agreement, and it will go and we'll take them for a couple months. That couple months can turn into three years, like Kanina or an Amy Owen, the one who died in Ottawa. So anyways, a good long story short, I wanted to know why more of these kids were dying. I wanted to figure it out. So we sought that information out. We looked for it. And we asked the chief coroner of, of Ontario, can you give us the number of Indigenous kids that died in care, and in care is an important term, uh, over the last five years? And they sent us back a chart really quick. Like they had a pre-made. Like they were ready to send us off. Mm-hmm. And it was 19 kids. And I was like, no. I'm like, you have five for 2016. I can give you five top of my head. There's no way. The number's way higher than that. And what I realized is that they don't, it's how they classify in care. So in care is you die in a foster home, a licensed foster home, a group home, an institution like a, like a, like a youth jail or a hospital. That's in care. Well, there's a heck of a lot more ways that you are, an agency is involved in your child's life. It's not classified as in care. And I argue that it's incorrect. And I actually say in care because I believe it still is um, agency-involved death. So, you know, I'll give you an example. The young girl after Amy died was sent home to Spokanshikon, um, and she had been running away for over and over and over again. So they sent her home. Within a month, she killed herself. She wasn't in care. That, that child welfare was definitely a driving factor in what was going on in her life and living in a, in a group home. And if anyone doesn't know what a group home is like, you might as well be in a jail. They're not a warm, loving home. It's the end of the road. It means you can't go anywhere else. They are the last straw before jail. So a lot of times kids are restrained and they're treated like cattle. And this is not me saying it. This is like document after document after document, report after report saying this stuff. So we got a number. So we asked for more information. And we found out online that the chief corner tracks agency involvement. Like I just felt like, like I was just explaining. And that number jumps, and that's when it started to make more sense to me. So over five years, that number went from 19 to 102, and that's a low number because the Ontario government, read my story, doesn't track it very well. They don't track, they've never tracked child welfare kids very well, and uh, almost vulnerable children, by the way. Like, these are the kids who need to be tracked, need to be under, I need to know where they are. So if I was to ask you, or ask the government, give me the number of indigenous children in care for last year. They'll give me a number, but it's not the full number because they don't have it. They have on-reserve children. Sure, that's easy, but they don't have off-reserve, like in Ottawa or in Toronto, maybe a little bit with Native Child and Family Services there because they have a specialized agency, but there's a lot of different 
um, a lot of agencies have a lot of Indigenous children still all throughout Ontario who are not involved in Indigenous agency. So that's kind of what we looked at. We looked at, we got the number of deaths, and then we looked at also the data on, in, in funding and realized that the majority of these deaths happened involving agencies, our territory up in Northern Ontario, where three predominant, there is predominantly three Indigenous agencies, including Tikkanagan and Dolico at a Thunder Bay. Um, now, those agencies in the covering most of that territory were underfunded while most of these children were dying by $400 million compared to agencies themselves. Like we compared their funding, say, to, the, to Delico to Windsor. Why does Windsor get twice as much money when they have twice as many available services and less kids in care? Does not make any sense, right? So we put that together and we, we showed that. And that's what Sydney Block has been fighting. And I, maybe I'm jumping ahead on you, but you can cut in if you want me to stop. But that's what she's been fighting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and what a fighter she is. And thank goodness she's there to do that. Yeah, no. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, it kind of clicked in, kind of clicked. And we're like, well, this is what Sydney's been arguing. This is what we have. And, you know, when people read the story, you have to realize that the federal government obviously created um, the laws, like Indian Act, and they created it's so many rotten, awful things. I call it, like, I'm a crime reporter, and I call it the greatest crime in Canadian history. Is the treatment of Indigenous people, so that's why I don't have a hard time finding stories because they exist everywhere. I just got to look, point in a direction, and I can find you a story. A crime has been committed. Um, so we were looking at um, we we're looking at how the agencies were affected. So the federal government provides the funding, 93% of all funding in Ontario, at least, and across, the, across Canada on reserve, is provided by the funding that they reimburse the provinces. So Ontario gets 93% of the money back that they fund for the agencies, for, for the Indigenous agencies, and there's about 11 of them in Ontario. Now, the Ontario government creates a system which they operate. They create, it's called being mandated. So the government, the federal government, you know, with your residential schools, safety schools, starvation policies, you name it, you know, all your listeners know about this. Um, they set the table in that sense. And then they're the bag man for child welfare in Ontario. So they give Ontario government money to operate, and Ontario government provides a law for the agency to exist. So a lot of people thought my story was, and not a lot of people, some people had said to me on the front lines, you know, that really gave Ontario government a pass. I wasn't trying to give anyone a pass. I gave, I, I wrote 5,500 words, making darn sure I was not giving anyone a pass. I don't think anybody gets a pass in this. Um, but, you know, everything, everybody is, needs to be looked at here from the agencies to the Ontario government, to the federal government. And then, you know, and in some ways, the reserve system themselves, like the First Nations, like the communities, what are you doing to combat this? And that's something we'll get into down the road. But I think it was important to put 102 deaths on record that no one ever has before, mm-hmm. and particularly 48 of them that died in the first two years under Justin Trudeau when he didn't comply with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that found Canada purposely underfunded on reserve child welfare and took him two years Two years to over two years to finally increase funding retroactively. Going mind you, back in 2016, the end of discrimination. And but you can't go back in time and save Canadian Sue Turtle, who died in October 29, 2016, when Trudeau was in power for over a year. You know you can't save Amy Owen's life, but and maybe they could have if they would have answered the bell right away and said, you know what, we're going to fund, we're going to put a bunch of money into this, and we're going to figure out, we're going to do whatever we can. That didn't happen. 48 kids died, 
And we're, are all of them attributed to Trudeau? I, don't, I can't prove that. But if one of them is, then that's an issue. And that, need, that needed to be said and that, that needed to come out during the election. It took me that long to get it done. You know, I wasn't trying to purposely leave it then, but it needed to come out. It needed to be put on record. Uh, in case uh, people are wondering uh, what uh, they're listening to right now, this is uh, Kenneth Jackson. He's an uh, APTN reporter in Ottawa, and he's uh, talking to us about uh, a story, in particular one of the stories he's done. And you can see this on uh, APTN website. If you go to APTN News and look up uh, Kenneth Jackson, you can see a list of all his stories, and you're able to go into to depth on, on this story and others. This one in particular is called uh, Death as Expected. You'll see a number of other stories there, Kenneth, uh, just to list a couple of the other stories that uh, you have delved into. Surviving Care, this is who Trudeau has been fighting at Human Rights Tribunal. Um, Kanina Sue, Turtle's family, Sue's Tigakinon, how do you pronounce that one, Kenneth? Tigakinon. Tigakinon, thank you. For $5.9 million over her wrongful death in foster home. And then there's... A number of the ones. Group home at odds with corner over how long Amy Owen left uh, alone at daycare, um, alone at day of suicide. A number of these stories you'll see on the APTN uh, news site under Kenneth uh, Jackson's name. And these are the stories he's been researching. Uh, Kenneth, as we were, as you were talking there, I wrote down a couple of things. Now, you know, you mentioned that, and 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 I just, you know, as you're talking. And I can't help but think, you know, these are people. These are all people. Yes, they're agencies. Yes, they have jobs. But they're human beings. And I, I just couldn't help but what I wrote down was hiding, be, hiding behind tech, uh, terminology is one of the things I wrote down. Is, as you were talking about how they, they decide who is in care and who isn't in care, you know. And, um, and of course, you, you know, in the story we find out about the underfunding, the differences between the North and the South. Um, and also the training of these people that are that are in these places, and how some of them don't have the proper training uh, to be, I guess, making these decisions. How, how, would you? Would, can you elaborate on those things? Yeah. No. Well, look. In the definite perspective, we did a story on Kyler Leclerc. He was on kinship out of care. So. Delico and I've written about this because they've they've gotten quite upset with me for calling him in care. Mm-hmm. Um, are referring to him as in care because Delico decided when that kid was born, and that's an agency operating out of Thunder Bay or out of Fort William, that's the Thunder Bay, and, uh, and has 13 First Nations in that area. Um, they they decided where that child lived. That was going to live with his white father and his white grandmother, and Indigenous mom could live with the mom and the, the mom and boyfriend she wants. So even though they hadn't been together, they're not they're not a couple anymore. But you can go live with them. Mm-hmm. But they decided where that child was staying. So when that child ends up dying, because the father left him on a bed for 30 minutes to go have a shower, and that was an adult bed that was cluttered, and he was later determined undetermined, his death was undetermined. That's another big issue I try to get through in the story, is that a lot of babies in Ontario and across Canada are dying, and they're being labeled undetermined because, you know, sudden infant death syndromes, SIDS or whatever, they're suffocating, but there's no evidence that there's no medical evidence unless they're strangled to show that they've suffocated. So they call them undetermined. It's not so. This was Kyler was three months old and he was undetermined. The reason why I'm telling you this to answer your question is when he died, the family, the mother and her and her and her mother and friends, 
well-to-do people. You know, this isn't, again, this wasn't a mother that was abusing her children. It was just a decision was made on the cuff or whatever it was that she, that baby couldn't go home, you know, for whatever reason. And I know the evidence and it's not very, it's not very strong in my opinion. Um, anyways, they tried to hold um, the caseworker responsible. So they wrote letter after letter to the legal, didn't get anything back. So then they, you know, this is a social worker, right? Or it's supposed to be. This is a, a case manager who's deciding where your kid lives. Right. She had no qualifications for that job in terms of she was not a licensed social worker. So when they went to the College of Social Workers and whatever they call it to get some recourse, they're like, that person's not licensed with us. So this is what you're dealing with up there, right? And a lot of times because, you know, on Thunder Bay is a little easier. You're going to have a little bit more of an um, easier way probably to get people to live there. But maybe up north a little harder in a more remote area. So the case managers it might be a little more difficult to get or your frontline workers might be more difficult to train or to get to have training. Um, but maybe that comes down to the underfunding. So if they had an extra, let's say Blico had an extra, we determined they were underfunded by about $167 million over that, that period, that five-year period when this kid died. Um, maybe they have more money for, for employment. Maybe they hire proper staff. Maybe those things that they can do. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm just throwing it out there. But this is, again, like if I'm talking to you and I'm saying things that sounds like my opinion, it's all based on report after report. Like you mm-hmm. read our story. Like the coroner did a, an investigation, called special panel report, into 12 deaths. Eight of them were Indigenous kids between 2014 and 2017 and found that the system was a complete failure. Like if you go into the 89-page report and you type in lack of, and I did, control F, find, lack of, it's, it's lack of comes up 39 times. Some to that effect, right? The lack of everything. Yeah. What I said. So there's, there's, you have kids being brought into a system by people who are not trained properly, don't have the education for it, or maybe have, you know, whatever the reasons are. Like they, they're just consistently found not to be trained. And I don't know how, what the reasons behind that is, other than that we've shown that they're severely underfunded, and also. It might be hard to attract certain qualified people to live up north. I don't know. That might that is something people talk about as well. So, Ken, from your from your research and from the stories that you've done on on these things, I mean, it's alarming, of course. It's tragic. Uh, I'm just wondering, has the information that you've brought forward to say even the coroner, uh, the entire coroner's office and, and speaking with him, are, are they surprised by the, the, the information, the data you're showing them? That's the thing. Nobody. That's when I told, like when I told you at the very beginning of like four first nation girls dying from six months, and that's a big deal. And everyone made a big deal because they should. And it was on headlines and star, you name it. Everyone in the system knew that we were nowhere near the number. And I, you know, it kind of bugs me now. It irks me going back thinking, you, they all knew. Everyone in the system knows how bad it is. I went to the system. I mean, I'm talking about the corner knows because he puts it out there. But, you know, thank God he does. He puts out something. It allows someone like me to come along and put it together. You know, so it, it's out there. He doesn't have to post that. Uh, Chief Corner doesn't have to post that information publicly. He does it quietly, mm. but someone like comes along and we, and we make sense of it. Um, when I talked to the former child advocate, I interviewed him in a Toronto hotel for the story. Um, Erwin Elman, and, you know, he was fired, obviously, from Doug Ford. It was the first move mm-hmm. Doug Ford made on child welfare was to fire the advocate. And they were just about to get going, too, David. Like, they, 
they just got their investigative powers a couple of years ago, and they were just about to start to hit the hit the going. Because a lot of kids died under under the advocate, but the advocate had no power. Mm. They were just getting it, and bang, it's it, it taken away from them. Um, anyways, he goes, he goes, no offense to you, Ken, because you know you work on these stories constantly. He goes, but none of the, none, nothing you write is, is is a surprise to me or anyone else who's involved. We all know how bad the problem is, and we've all known for a very long time. The question is why no one do anything about it, and why are no criminal charges ever made? Because what I'm going what I'm writing is negligence. It really is, and and I think that's fair comment. Mm-hmm. And I've asked the coroner that many times. And I said, why are there no one charged for it? Why is no one charged for of death? She was clearly suicidal. She was. She had a news, and this sounds terrible. And I and people might not want to hear this, but I've written it. She had an outline of of a news bruise bruised outline of a noose around her neck, right? Like, days before she died. It was clearly visible in videos that she posted. It was all, it, everyone knew what she was, how much trouble she was in, yet she was left alone, according to her video, for at least 46 minutes and 20 seconds. And this agency operated home that had one fly-in contract worker, Tikkanagan hired, with a young child also in there. Um, and these agency operated homes are short-term stays, emergency bases kind of thing. So everyone knew Kanani was in trouble. So how how on earth is she left alone for a minute? And there's things they can do, 24-hour watch. It's called one-on-one or one-to-one, where you bring in a worker, purposely, they don't get they don't leave. When they go to the bathroom, the door's open. They don't get separated. Mm. So I asked the coroner multiple times, why are no charges like these things? And he just says, you know, like a lot of them say, and maybe, like, I talk to a lot of people, and I go, why are no one ever charged? And a lot of times I'm told there's too many people involved. It's just there's too many are that's um I think I think if I'm being honest, my opinion is that let's say police show up and they investigate like the one of the babies I, I I you know I write about dying, I think they're just thinking, Well, that's the that's the system. This is what happens. I think we've gotten to that point where people are just like, Well, this is what happens. And <laughs> and that's why I'm laying it bare. I want everyone in public to know. Everyone that I'm calling and asking for the information from might know. That's fine. But I want everyone to know. I want to lay it bare and put the truth out there and everyone else can make up in their mind what's going on. And, and everyone should know. So, Ken, my next question is, if, if everyone in the system knows when you were researching this that, that the numbers were higher than, than you know, were, were stated and that when you revealed this, no one was surprised... I, I, why Why is no one inside the system doing anything? Well, there are certain people who are trying. I believe the chief coroner, and I've talked to him for a number of years now, and we've had some arguments, like, I've, like we have. And, you know, it's got heated at times. And, you know, it's been, it's been a good debate. Because I look at things from a crime perspective, the crime reporter, I see things in a certain way, and I go, if, if one plus one is two, mm. you got a crime. Like, come on, this is, this is obvious here. And, um, you know, they got a foster home being operated by a registered nurse, and they have basically a dog kennel foster care with kids' cribs lined from wall to wall, and they're full, they're full of toys and, and blankets when they're three months old. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I looking at this and thinking, that's not right? right. Why isn't people who have the ability to make decisions and lay charges not going, you can't do this? Mm-hmm. You're a registered nurse you know, on top of everything. This is a, this is a true story. Um, but 
there are so he is trying to make incremental change. Uh, it's tough. There are it, it's it's become I don't know too normal. I, I think is the phrase I would use. And you know the one woman that we interviewed for our story helped us greatly was Dr. Kim Snow. She's um she is someone that the governments have go to. She has she's like an, I called her an insider, and she consistently pushes regulations, procedures like. She's pushing for change. There are some who are pushing for change, but a lot of people in this are just trying to, like you said, they're, they're regular people. You know, no one wants a kid to die. Like what the, what the lady that was with kind of Sue Turtle, I, I I don't think for a second she was like, oh, screw Kanina. Just go in your room. I, you know, you're fine. She didn't want Kanina to die. No one wants people to die. But there needs to be, people need to be held accountable for the decisions they make. The same way I am, if I get something wrong, I expect to be told by somebody, hey, you got something wrong, you need to fix it. Mm-hmm. Or if I do something really bad, like hit someone with my car, I expect to be charged for that. Well, what's the difference between hitting someone with a car, being impaired driving, and taking a kid from a home because the parents have um, no groceries cause, cause, because they're poor, putting them in child welfare, putting them in, in um, through customary care, and put that in quotes because it's supposed to be more culturally appropriate, but they end up in a foster home down where I live in Ottawa. In, in you know in the suburbs, okay. you know that's not culturally appropriate. Mm. You know there's these those things need to be looked at. They need they need to be discussed like we are right now. People need to have these discussions. Like this is how this is operating. What I'm writing in my story, I'm just trying to get to the truth. And a lot of people try and stop me. So there's, there are people in the system. I wrote about that who try to keep me out, like Thunder Bay Courthouse, even Ontario government. Like though, if you're a reporter and you and you say right now, give me the number of um, total kids in care last year in Ontario. And they'll give you a number of like 12,651. Well, that's not accurate. And why it's not accurate is because the system's not able to give you a point in time, a single point in time um, number. Like say today, I want the number today, how many kids are in care? They can't give it to you. It doesn't operate that way. It's not designed that way. So what, it, what So I call them out and go, you're misleading me, who I actually know about this? How many other reporters and members of the public are you misleading? I put that in quotes too. You know, when it really that's on average. You got on average that many kids because you don't keep in like the one kid who came in for a day or two days. There's it's an on average thing, so it's not a, a full number. And not not to get not, you know not to mention how many of those are Indigenous kids because you can't tell me that either. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they don't have to by law submit. Agencies don't have to by law. I'm talking about the 38 non-Indigenous agencies. They don't have to submit their indigenous identity-based data until July 2021. Mm-hmm. Come on, that's what this is like. This is not this is this is information we should have readily available. But the system is like they're just everyone gets time to like you know I guess come into the century. Mm-hmm. You're talking about talking about regular data, right? Right, uh, Kenneth. Uh, listen. Um, we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but it's been wonderful speaking with you, and, and I appreciate you bringing this information out to the public and getting these stories out there. I, I want to ask you, is there anything that you've got on the horizon that uh, people might want to be aware of that you've got coming up uh, they can look for in the news? Yeah, I'm going to be going after um, pretty soon. I got more data. Some data I actually was able to get was on crown wards. I wanna, I'm digging into the, these are kids who have been in care for two years or longer. Um, there is a little bit better identity-based data with that because they've been around a little longer. 
Um, these aren't the kids that are dying, though. These are, there's very few of these kids that die because there's actually a lot more services available to them and, and they have a lot more rights. Mm. Anyways, I have a lot more. I'm building a map. I'm going to show you where they all are in, you know, in Ontario. And I focus on Ontario because I believe Ontario is supposed to be the leader in most provinces. If they're failing, everyone's failing. So that's why I focus on Ontario. Okay. Uh, Kenneth, uh, it's been a pleasure, as I say, having you on, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on our show today. And I really look forward to perhaps having you on again uh, so that we can uh, uh, get more of this out there. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that uh, we can do that uh, perhaps on a regular basis and, and have you back on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. That's Kenneth Jackson. He is the Ottawa, or one of the Ottawa reporters for the Aboriginal People's Television Network. If you are interested in what you've heard uh, in what we've been discussing today, you can go to aptn.ca, look up the news area, and look for Kenneth Jackson. You can click on Kenneth and see all the stories he's brought forward, including the one we've been predominantly talking about today. That one is called Death as Expected. Once again, uh, Nyawa to Kenneth for coming on the show and talking to us. Don't go away, though. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth. So welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. I have on the line with me the director for the Centre of Truth and Reconciliation, and uh, we appreciate him taking the time to join us, Rai Morin. He's the director, as I say, and he's the first director of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. And it's his job to guide the development, growth, and reach for the NCTR. Uh, Rye came to the centre directly from Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, where he served as the director of Statement Gathering and the National Research Centre. So, Rye, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me on. And uh, as we were just uh, talking about, uh, the weather up in Manitoba, which is where you are right now, is uh, certainly uh, something to deal with uh, for you guys up there at the moment. It really has been. It's been quite something. Uh, I was uh, trying to make my way back home and was delayed. My flight was cancelled. All the highways shut down and and came home to find a city that really has taken a a very serious uh, beating uh, from this early snowfall. Lots of tree damage, lots of damage uh, to property. Uh, pretty, pretty stark reminder that uh, you know the things are definitely changing right now. Mm. Yeah, I heard a lot of um, stories from indigenous communities that had been uh, um, had were forced to move from their communities because of the storm. I think there at present there's 16 First Nations communities that are on a state of emergency and on evacuation. Uh, The main convention center here in Winnipeg has been converted to a um, uh, a refuge uh, for people coming in from external communities. They're adding another one, so that's up over a 1,000 beds uh, that they've added on an emergency basis. Um, A lot of people have been affected, and there's still uh, lots of houses just uh, within Winnipeg here that are without power. And from what I've seen in the news, at least, the it appears it may be a week or more before they get all the power on uh, in the province. It's, mm-hmm. So it's a very, very significant event out here. Right. So, listen, you've joined us uh, as we introduced you as the director for the Centre of Truth and Reconciliation. Now, can you describe, for, perhaps for those people that aren't as familiar with some of the, this terminology that we're using in terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada mm-hmm. versus the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation? Can you describe the difference? Yeah, really good question. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself 
came out of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. So this settlement agreement settled what at the time was Canada's largest class action lawsuit. It was very comprehensive. It was groundbreaking at its time and remains groundbreaking to this day. Uh, That settlement agreement created a number of processes, one of which was that Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, Other processes included uh, a very comprehensive overall process to uh, compensate uh, victims for the very serious sexual and physical abuse that happened in the schools. There was another process to assist in healing. Um, and uh, all of these processes uh, have been very significant. So for the listeners that are most familiar perhaps with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it more or less started in about 2009, ran until 2015, had a big mandate to gather as much uh, oral history from residential school survivors and other people affected, Uh, collect the documentary history as best as possible from church and government archives, uh, issue a final report, hold major national events, and and, uh, a number of community events. So it wrapped up with the release of its report in 2015. Uh, We're the organization that follows after the TRC. So we're not the TRC. We have a different mandate. Uh, We're not time-limited like the Commission was. Uh, We hold everything that the Commission collected uh, in perpetuity, uh, really for the betterment of Canada, uh, for access by all Canadians, certainly for access by residential school survivors and their families, and uh, carry on in that spirit and, and goal of the Commission's work of um, remembering, honouring, protecting, preserving, and ensuring uh, that all Canadians have the opportunity to understand our collective uh, and painful history. Uh, you said a couple of things there that I thought was interesting. You, you, when you say access to all Canadians, and you say specifically for for residential school survivors, why would why would some some survivors want to uh, access the information? Yeah, well, we have to remember that for the majority of children that ended up in those residential schools, uh, they ended up there oftentimes without parental consent, Mm. and were essentially raised by an institution. So what that means is that there was no uh, parental figure in their lives uh, that was present to, for example, take photographs of them or to preserve their report cards that they may get at the end of the year. So for many survivors, their time within those residential schools is quite painful, Uh, But it can also be a bit of a a historical blind spot in many ways. So we get a lot of survivors contacting us, looking for their own records, looking to better understand what really happened inside of those residential schools. Um, For family members of survivors, uh, especially the children of survivors uh, or, uh, say, um, nieces or nephews or grandchildren of residential school survivors, we get a lot of... um, uh, those groups uh, contacting us to try to piece together their own personal family histories. So, for example, somebody might say, well, I know my dad attended a school, but I don't know which one. I don't know what it was like there. Uh, Do you have any information on him that might help me better understand who I am today? Uh, All of that impact from the residential schools is certainly uh, felt intergenerationally uh, through through the generations. So it's very important that people have access to the information and, and have access uh, for that so they can better understand themselves. Now, access, is is access uh, in Manitoba? Is it online? How do people access it if they want to get a hold of it? 
Yeah, a couple of different ways. We have a portion of the records available online at the nctr.ca. Uh, they're they're as publicly accessible records. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a lot of those records um, are somewhat older, um, and they're records that were already made publicly available, um, say by the by Canada or one of the church archives. We've got about 5 million records total at the NCTR and work every day to both better understand what we have and then what we can make available uh, broadly to the public. Uh, if the records aren't available on the public website, then uh, people have the right of you know, giving us a call and, and seeing if we would be able to make certain records available. Certainly for survivors and their families, that takes the form of kind of something along the lines of an access to information request, although uh, it, there's a specific process for su survivors and their families. Uh, other people can make requests, say, for historical documentation uh, or uh, perhaps uh, photographs. We provide that type of information out on a, on a fairly frequent basis once it goes through a very robust privacy review and a privacy analysis to make sure that uh, nobody's being harmed by the disclosure. Of course, with a history like this that we're talking about inside the residential schools, uh, personal privacy and the protection of that is, is very important uh, because there's just been so many bad things that have happened inside of those schools. Yeah, I was going to say uh, it, it would be a very uh, triggering uh, uh, event or, or triggering um, uh, uh, a situation for people that may be looking into this uh, information. Um, so how, how, how is that taken into account? Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's funny because when we talk about all of this work of, of truth-telling and getting this information out into the public, uh, we have to recognize that the, these are all steps towards healing. They're all steps that help us as a country, help us as individuals uh, heal from uh, a past that we might not understand very well. So there's a difference in this regard between something that's perhaps painful and then something that's harmful. So for example, if we um, injure our, our physical bodies, for example, say we, we wreck our knee, uh, there's a difference between working through the pain to rehabilitate that, that uh, part of our body and then creating further harm. So oftentimes what we see is, you know, when people are contacting us, we, we spend a lot of time talking to them, uh, a lot of time assessing what type of information they're looking for and, and how they're looking for it. Uh, and then we, we spend a lot of time really making sure that the, the package has all their information in it really clearly documented. And then we send that out. And, and very often we hear that, yes, it may bring up some some painful memories, but in fact that it's very, very healing in the long run, that it's, that it's an important way of kind of rehabilitating these pasts that we have in this country. And I think that generally applies to Canada as a whole. When we look at this, this part of our history, when we look at this record of essentially mass human rights violations and significant Indigenous rights violations, it's a painful part of our past to look at, but we have to look at it, we have to understand it, and we have to figure out now how we're going to respond to that past to ensure that it never happens again. Mm. Uh, you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. My guest is the Director for Centre of Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg, Rye Morin, and he is my guest today on the show. 
And that's the voice you just heard. It's great having him on the show to talk about uh, the Center for Truth and Reconciliation. You know, Rai, when you, you were mentioning a couple of things, and even, even the words truth and reconciliation, um, I'm not sure if, if, this is, uh, if you were able to catch this when it was in Manitoba, but something that's just opened up in Toronto is Mandela's Struggle for Freedom uh, mm. exhibition. Were, were you able to catch that? In, yeah. Um, I found that very interesting because it ties directly into truth and reconciliation, of course. Exactly, and I think when we look at these truth and reconciliation processes, we have to remember that there have been uh, a huge number of truth commissions in the world now. Uh, I think we're up, we're we're approaching 70, if not uh, uh, beyond 70 now. And there's new truth commissions, new truth and reconciliation commissions being set up really on a daily basis. Uh, for example, I've just been corresponding with the Truth Commission in Colombia. We had a delegation in from Taiwan the other day. We've had uh, folks come up uh, from uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Mali uh, down in Africa. Uh, they're setting up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Finland right now, and we've also had the commissioners from the Norwegian Truth Commission. These are all mechanisms that are intended to move a country from uh, a state of injustice to better realized justice and to establish or maintain uh, respectful relationships amongst and between groups. Uh, they're part of an overall transitional justice strategy, uh, which is kind of the, the major rubric that these Truth and Reconciliation Commissions fall under. Uh, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission is very unique. Um, I think it is being uh, quite extensively studied around the world. It's being seen as, as quite a successful commission, uh, which I think it certainly has been. Um, it is unique, though, because we've specifically been focusing on harms and attacks that were perpetrated against children, and, and that does make us unique, rather than you know, the, the broad societal uh, conflict that we've seen, say, in South Africa. This particular investigation that we had to look at looked into child abuse, essentially, in many ways, shapes and forms, and uh, marks it as being unique. Mm. Yeah, I was surprised uh, when I went through the exhibit that, uh, that you know Canada is referred to uh, at least two or three times through there. Mm-hmm. And I think you know that that is a testament to Canada. I'm I am honestly continuously amazed at how much momentum continues on the uh, in the aftermath of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, there are groups across the country that are continuing uh, every day to either try to realize the calls to action or better implement them or better understand them. Uh, that's not this, this commission has a longevity that uh, we haven't necessarily seen in, in the aftermath of other major government inquiries or other processes. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I mean, one, I think the, the raw injustice of what happened in the residential schools is so striking that most Canadians as, you know, good people um, feel compelled to do something once they learn the truth. Uh, the um, commission also held those national events and, and, you know, significant gatherings that allowed people to attend and, and take part in those, or at least increase the ability to take part in those. And three, I think, you know, Canada has long been seen as a, as a bastion of human rights. It, I think it has just taken a while for this country 
to understand that the human rights that we so often espouse are not being equitably afforded to Indigenous peoples in this country. Mm. And I think Canadians are starting to understand that, and and the light bulb is starting to turn on. We've still got a long ways to go, um, and we're not out of the woods uh, by any means, but I, I think it's starting. You know, if I can just give a little personal uh, story uh, related to this in some ways, and I'm just wondering how maybe you've heard of this kind of thing, that, that people that are indirectly affected by... Uh, residential school. And what I mean by that is this, when my, my own father was uh, very young, about six or seven, uh, he was taken from the Six Nations Reserve and sent to live in the state so that he would not have to go to the residential school system, that being the Mohawk Institute uh, around Six Nations. And um, he, when he came back, he never came back to the reserve. And of course, he didn't want to be associated with uh, being indigenous and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and hence, uh, I grew up, uh, I didn't know him uh, and I had this huge black hole that uh, took me a long time to fill because of that uh, situation. Um, but in some strange way, I feel affected. If, does that make sense to you? Absolutely, it makes sense. And, and you have been affected, and, and you are affected by it. And I, I think your, your own words uh, reiterate that. And across the country... Uh, you, you know, the experience of your family and, and your own personal experience is something that we continue to hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Canada took a very aggressive approach towards uh, the suppression of Indigenous cultures, and it did so really through any means possible, in, including some very um, immoral and unjust acts uh, through law, uh, legislation, and through the residential schools and a host of other issues. Um, When we talk about reconciliation, we have to, I think, understand it meaning different things to different people as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those of us uh, inside the Indigenous community, um, a lot of what reconciliation means is a reconstituting of, of who we are and understanding who that is and then healing those family relationships and those community relationships that have been so heavily impacted as a result of having to withstand, uh, you know, cultural genocide for, you know, the better part of, uh, you know, a century and a half, if not longer. Uh, that's not an insignificant um, uh, task to undertake. You know, the healing from that, the healing from intergenerational harms is, is very significant. And, and that's where so many of the calls to action do focus on not just the work that Canadians need to do, like sort of mainstream Canada to better understand this, but also the, the mechanisms that need to be in, put in place in order to ensure that Indigenous peoples can indeed reclaim culture, language, yeah. heritage, identity, uh, sense of space and place within, within this country, uh, which, you know, was always the intent. Uh, we weren't meant to live in this broken relationship. That wasn't the goal at the beginning, yet it, it became standard policy for you know, the better part of Canada's existence. Right. So let's talk about some of that healing then, shall we, a little bit, in terms of some of the things that, for instance, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation has, uh, has undertaken. Uh, I believe you, you uh, brought for, you had a ceremony, a cloth with names of some 2,800 children who died at residential schools that was unveiled at the Canadian Museum Museum of History in Gatineau. That's right. So that just occurred on on September 30th, so quite recent. That was in fulfillment of uh, some of the TRC calls to action that uh, were issued directly to the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, Really what we did there was 
uh, try to fulfill our promise to survivors that we would do whatever we could to ensure the children that never returned home from the residential schools would be properly honoured, remembered, uh, celebrated, and never forgotten. Uh, so the work that we did uh, involved uh, the creation of a, of a you know, robust information management system, uh, but then, more importantly, a, a public uh, version of the, the National Student Memorial Register that uh, continues to be updated in, in real time as we locate or discover more children, and then a, a very large ceremonial cloth that we unveiled that uh, had all of the names of the children that we know of to date listed on it uh, by residential school. Mm. That marked the, the first time in Canadian history that that list of, of students has ever been seen. It was very powerful, very emotional, uh, difficult day, but again, uh, necessary, a very, very important necessary step for this country to better understand and, and of course, honour those children. And what are what are some of the other things that uh, that, that your office is doing that uh, is moving us forward in that way? Well, just this week, we're also holding a gathering here in Winnipeg. Uh, it's been a little bit of a scramble because of all this snow. We were going to hold it out in uh, Portage La Prairie, actually, on the uh, Long Plains uh, First Nation. Uh, and it's a gathering, national gathering, to bring communities and community members together to discuss what we're collectively going to do with the very limited number of, of standing residential schools that, that remain in this country. So it's an attempt to create a community that brings some of the various communities together that are that have these schools that are working already very hard to protect or preserve those sites mm. and to see if we can start to stimulate a bit of a, a national response to this. So we've got uh, some government officials from both Parks Canada and uh, Heritage Canada attending. Uh, we've got people from across the country uh, coming, and I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. It's it's certainly a conversation that we haven't had yet, and the country remains uh, in a bit of an interesting time where, as they say, there's there's about 16 residential schools still standing in some form or another. Uh, there is really, as of yet, no comprehensive national plan uh, in place to preserve or protect those sites. And I think uh, it's something the the country really needs to answer and respond to to, to uh, figure out you know what the next steps are. It's interesting you you, you say that. I know uh, as as uh, um, someone as I mentioned uh, my involvement with Six Nations. I know that for instance the Woodland Cultural Center, the old Mohawk Institute, which was uh, given back to the community, uh, that is being rebuilt and turned into uh, a museum. It was uh, structurally. Uh, starting to lose its structural integrity over time. And I say that because I ran a business that just happened to be in that building for almost 10 years. And uh, I saw the, the it starting to collapse. And, and uh, I know that it's been gutted and it's starting to re, uh, be turned back into that original uh, building that it was meant to, so that people can go through there and see what, what that was like originally. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I think the efforts out at Six Nations there have been really important. They've been a really important uh, leader in this entire uh, quest for preservation and recognition and remembrance. And I think that school is a very good example of one that uh, highlights the the perils of preservation. Mm. Uh, They were right on the threshold of losing the entire building due Mm. to 
what was rel- relatively a simple fix of, of fixing the leaking roof, mm-hmm. but they, they couldn't get uh, the funding in place or, or raise the money uh, in order to fix that until the the public really began to understand that this was a serious issue and this was certainly a site of, of very uh, significant historical significance. So thankfully that roof has been protected and as you say the Woodlands Cultural Institute and the group of survivors there and the entire community has really rallied around that site to protect and preserve it. And it's a good example of a place that you know is relatively close to Toronto yet most people living in the greater Toronto area really still, uh, generally speaking, uh, majority have no idea that that even exists and that mm-hmm. there's this site of consciousness there that uh, really can and should be visited and really presents a good opportunity for school groups and others to, to better understand this history. Uh, Rye, we're qu- quickly running out of time. and It's been wonderful having you on and, and talking about this and sharing some of the stories and, and looking at this uh, at the future in terms of, of healing um, is there any other, anything else coming up on the horizon that, that people might want to be aware of that you're, you're undertaking? You know, I think our work continues to evolve and be pretty dynamic. I, I would just really encourage people to, to pay attention to the news, pay attention to the um, Indigenous stories that are present in the news. You know, one of the, the really important things um, that was said in the apology, and as imperfect or as perfect as that apology was, it says that, you know, the attitudes and ideas that gave rise to the residential schools have no place in Canadian society. So be it the ongoing work of Dr. Cindy Blackstock to ensure that children of today and tomorrow are being protected, uh, various other class actions that are happening right now for day schools and 60 scoop survivors, be it to the historical work or the forward-looking historical work that we're doing through the centre, they're all part and parcel of the same um, uh, quest for justice and, and quest for recognition. So really encourage people to pay attention to the stories really as we head into the election you know encourage people to pay attention to what people uh, are saying in this election as well and to really recognize that when we uphold things like the UN declaration when we really pursue this path of reconciliation this is all about making a better country a safer country for everybody not just for indigenous peoples but for everybody and uh you know it's just good to really be informed and pay attention on what's going on Nicely said, Rye. And uh, where would we be without Cindy Blackstock? What a what a tremendous force she is. Absolutely, you know, it's advocates like that, and and really countless other advocates that are pushing, pushing, pushing on a daily basis to make sure that again, kids of today, tomorrow, uh, are safe and protected. All children, you know, uh, you know, we really have to to commend their work. It's not easy work. It, it takes a lot of energy, and uh, it's uh, it's it's really important and necessary, though. Right. thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And that is Rye Moore, and he is the director for the Center of Truth and Reconciliation. He's in Winnipeg. It was a pleasure to have him on Moment of Truth today. And you have been listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Ona.